We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Dimitri Batori, who is a lecturer in politics at the University of Bristol, a Labour councillor for St. Christopher's Ward, and author of a terrific new book, uh, The Battle of Ideas in the Labour Party, From Attlee to Corbyn and Brexit. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Will. Um, So the first question uh, that I'd like to ask, now, the title of the book may make the subject seem... uh, somewhat obvious as to, to what it's about, but um, what, is your, what is your aim uh, in the book and uh, what sort of ideas are you uh, talking about and discussing in the book? Uh, the, the aim of the book was to highlight to um, many people um, involved in the labour movement, maybe supportive of the movement or just uh, someone who's not partisan, to understand that this is a historic battle uh, between the left and the right in the party, that this Corbyn era is not um, unusual. It's common for the Labour Party to have battles between its left and its right. And I wanted to, A, give people the sense that this is a historical thing throughout its history, the the Labour Party, and, and B, to put that into concrete terms of what am I actually talking about in terms of ideas and why is it important and why do people get so passionate about it on either side? So it was to convey that, that kind of a narrative to its history. And ideas um, are vary quite a lot. So from Attlee and the welfare, the setting up of the welfare system and, uh, and the NHS through to, to the 50s when the Labour Party um, so I kept losing a lot of elections and the growth of the affluent society. The 60s where Wilson um, uh, tried to uh, heal the then riven party between its left and right and how the Labour Party adapts to its new world um, through the through science and scientific progress to unexpectedly losing in the 70s to the Labour Party again having a battle right through the 70s really uh, between its left and right how again it re, uh, regenerates itself the left being dominant at that stage uh, through the 80s and Kinnick's renewal who basically um, disavows sort of big ideas and changing the world and focusing more on uh, smaller policies in order to win elections and kind of new Labour picking up that mantle to a certain extent and um, although it doesn't reject big ideas as to the same extent as Kinnock, um, to the Corbyn era, uh, the Ed Miliband and Corbyn era, which is the kind of the de- the demise of New Labour and its central economic theme, which was built on the success of the financial system, and how actually even now, through Ed Miliband to Corbyn to Starmer now, is has not been resolved is how the party regenerates with the collapse of basically a new Labour economic model. And neither has really dominated that uh, or solved that situation. And I still argue, I mean, it's early days for Starmer, to be fair, but he's going to have to face it. Um, Now, uh, one of the things that you mentioned there is the the progression of ideas and the way that uh, the Labour Party uh, interacts differently uh, with ideas. One of the things that I found interesting in the book is the way that you um, break uh, down ideas into different sort of uh, tiers or, or, or types. So yeah. the overarching uh, philosophical ideas, 
then the uh, programmatic ideas and then yeah. uh, the policy ideas. I-, I wondered, could you explain to our listeners what are the key differences between these different types of ideas? Yeah, sure, of course. So philosophical ideas is the big ones. It's like the capitalism or socialism, kind of global uh, ideas, ideas that take around the globe and can be adapted across the globe. Programmatic is more focused on maybe regional or country by country ideas that are dominant in that country or in that region for a period of time. Um, so a good example of that would be uh, neoliberalism. Now, some people might say it's dom- a global dominant, it's dominantly uh, dominant across the world, but actually, it's it's neoliberalism takes different forms in different regions and different countries. Um, so it, it's very much a programmatic idea. And third is a policy idea, which can be as little as increasing income tax or having a wealth tax, or it's a more bespoke practical idea. Um, one of the things that I, I found interesting is the way that you um, demonstrate the uh, the links between these different types of ideas and how one for example, the philosophical idea can then influence um, the policy idea. Do you yeah. think that this sort of chain uh, that we have of one idea influencing another and then influencing another and another is something that hasn't uh, been as analysed as it should be in terms of discussing ideologies and ideas, not just in the Labour Party, but in politics in general? Completely. Yeah, it's almost an uncontested space, actually. It's just everyone starts the policy debate on either side of the political spectrum on, um, on the, within the same framework. So that's why I would describe it, within the same philosophical and programmatic framework, without really trying to challenge that. So they just talk about policy ideas, and it becomes same old battles about tax increase or decrease or... All those kind of almost they're important debates, but sterile intellectually. Um, to be fair to Ed Miliband, he did actually look about look at this, um, and he wanted to challenge kind of more programmatic paradigm shift ideas. Um, but uh, that he tried to do that in a, in a contemporary political environment, which is ruthless, as you will be and you as your listeners know. So actually, he didn't get the space to do that or the political room to do that. So. It's large in contested space in politics. Um, you mentioned Ed Miliband there, and uh, in the book you um, do analyse some of the, the big ideas that um, Ed Miliband had in his time in the Labour Party, and there are three that are particularly um, that, that stand out that were connected with his time as leader, uh, which are Blue Labour, One Nation Labour, and uh, Pre-Distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, could you explain to the listeners what these terms mean? Because, of course, some may have heard of, for example, Blue Labour, but might not know what the intricate uh, ideological uh, pieces to it are. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll be as brief as I can. So um, they, these three vary in coherence and having a, plat, uh, having a kind of policy programme, but they were kind of dominant within... The Ed Miliband era. So Blue Labour was uh, one of the most theoretically developed in the sense that uh, Maurice Glassman, now Lord Glassman, come up with a concept uh, largely as a response to, I don't know if you remember then, Philip Blonde, who come up with kind of red Toryism. 
um, and Maurice Glassman flipped it and talked about Blue Labour. And this was focused about uh, the Labour Party um, reconnecting. I, uh, and this is, let's not forget, this was in uh, 2008, 2009, 2010. Labour reconnecting with those communities, the northern communities that had felt left behind uh, by globalisation, both culturally and financially. So it was about how labor regenerated itself, regenerated its economic model to A, uh, factor those voters in again, and B, to reconnect with their patriotism, which is the cultural aspect, which has been neglected by the Labour Party. Uh, and, and many would say well, the party's paying the price now. Um, so it was about how the party reconnects with those two strands in the, in the, in the era of New Labour's demise. One Nation was a kind of revamp of that Blue Labour idea. The problem with Blue Labour, it, it, it came across as nostalgic and kind of anti-feminism because mm. it was seen as returning the party to its kind of historical roots, which was very masculine. So it came, it came up a lot of internal pressure. So One Nation was a kind of resurrection of Blue Labour in the sense that it tried to focus on the patriotism aspect of the debate and about and um and about financially everyone doing better i think i can't remember the exact uh, famous quote ed Miliband did but basically when one boat rises all boats have to rise or something like that um and so it was about re rebranding blue labor into a kind of more focused thing about uh, labor dominating or at least having more cultural pur purchase with those communities that felt left but increasingly left behind by uh, the labor party and then pre-distribution was the really interesting one which got rarely any airtime and was highly engaged with but actually was the most uh, rigorously uh, thought through and coherent pol uh, political and economic uh, renewal and that was based on the idea that instead of redistribution, which is what the Labour Party normally resorts to in any in any of its economic models, which is based on the Scandinavian model, um, you would change the system before you went into, say, tax and benefits. So the living wage would be the classic example, which is the one everyone quotes. But it's a, a development of those kind of policies where the system is fairer before someone contributes or earns a wage or pays any tax or takes any benefits. So before the economic system, the system was already set up to be fairer. Um, and Jacob Hacker, who's the theorist who came up with it, uh, developed a book with a, another co-author um, about inequality and uh, how you addressed growing inequality, uh, not only uh, in, in the United States where they focused there, but in Britain and across the world. And so Ed Miliband jumped on that idea and was a big advocate of it. And it, it, it was the one that kind of, that, the one that really could have shifted the Labour Party quite fundamentally. Do, do you think that, um, part of the, uh, issue, um, that Ed Miliband faced in his time in the Labour Party is that you have these, um, I've just talked about these three sort of like big, uh, ideas in terms of where the Labour Party uh, would go forward and would shift. But the fact that there were so many, in some ways, competing ideas, this meant that the pathway forward uh, for the Labour Party at the 2015 election uh, was much um, more difficult than it might have been if there had only been one big central idea which had occupied uh, the thoughts of the party. 
Yeah, and in many ways, Ed Miliband inherited a party that was, as we all know, and still is, split. And uh, not only it's become personal about personalities, but it's actually split about the future, about how you address the future and the future challenges. And the issue that is um, on the back burner now with the COVID crisis, but actually will return, particularly because of the COVID crisis, is a deficit position. So um, uh, uh, the, the Tory, Tory Chancellor has announced that after, you know, basically after this crisis is over, there will there we have to be a reckoning for the government in terms of dealing with all this debt it's just accumulated. So the Labour Party finds itself again in a in even a worse situation compared to the 2008 crisis with how does a social democratic party deal uh, politically um, with both politically externally politically and also internally with the idea of how do you address the deficit? Do you spend, which was Corbyn's uh, central argument, or do you cut, which was what basically Alistair Darling had proposed before New Labour lost in 2010. And Ed Miliband was in the middle and sort of didn't directly address it and was, uh, well, trying to manage the different personalities, the different ideas. And, you know, many people say he, he was a failure, but actually you could flip it and say he was a success in, in the sense that he kept the party relatively close together. Um, and although it was a, a significant loss in 2015, it could have been much worse, actually. Um, uh, the, the, the divides were there. They were, they were quite heated. The arguments were really heated about this renewal. And Ed Miliband had to keep had to spend an inordinate amount of time controlling that. Um, Now, you mentioned Corbyn there, and of course, Corbyn and Brexit are uh, in the title of the book. Um, What do you think uh, is the central idea of Corbynism? Do you think that there is a central idea uh, to Corbynism? Because some people have suggested that Corbynism as such wasn't even really a... um, coherent ideology what would you say to that yeah i wanted to test that because that you're right that was the uh coherent uh critique of corbynism so i wanted to see if that was true um i think it did actually Uh, i think um the socialist campaign group uh largely driven by john mcdonald actually not corbyn have been thinking about renewal um and thinking about how the party would generate itself and what ideas would be central to that and uh McDonnell had basically adapted Beninism. It was Beninism in the 21st century. They used to call it, they called it 21st century socialism, actually. Um, but it was Beninism, Beninism, which was about, um, nationalizing industries, about being more protectionist in economic terms. So very anti-neoliberal. Um, almost, I think I quote Ben, it was almost like retreat into the nation state, as it were, and then um, sort out your house, as it sort out your own economic house before you started being more international and more uh, and integrating your markets. And uh, that was Benism. It was about um, uh, more cooperatives, it was about workers on boards. And now various idea uh, polit- uh, leaders have had versions of those ideas, but John McDonald's more explicit about it. Um, and he had a key policy thinker underneath him called Andrew Fisher, who wrote a book, um, which just escapes me now, uh, but it's in the book, uh, that 
talked a lot about these issues and talked about about policies and a lot of them were adapted into the party manifesto um which was around um uh, nationalization they even thought about nationalization of land nationalization of key industries it was about um taxing more the the the, the richer more it was about uh, retreating economically into the nation state it was about a uh, floating idea of a national citizen's income which was in the 2019 manifesto all these things were bubbling i would use the term from 2014 onwards so i think if you wanted some if you wanted corbynism you just got to look towards ben um now you mentioned tony ben there and um, benism and of course tony ben was heavily involved in the 1976 uh, referendum for the no campaign for mm. uh, Britain to not be a part of the uh, common market as it then was. How much of a natural fit do you think uh, Brexit and wanting to not be a part of the European Union, how much of a natural fit do you think uh, that was and is to Corbynism? I think it was a completely natural fit. I think... Um, well, actually, I don't, I don't have to say I think. I interviewed key players within that discussion where they were really debating whether, um, which side of the referendum they would go in. And the fact it was even a debate tells us a lot. Um, and that it was quite heated, heated debate. And there were people airing towards being on the leave side of the campaign. And it was based on, again, on Benism, which was hostile, um, to the EU, hostile to it as a project, particularly around the integration of markets and labour, felt it was a capitalist agenda, and that um, I think Corbyn, let's not forget, is an acolyte of Tony Benn. Um, a lot of a lot of those, a lot of people in the socialist campaign group uh, look up and revere Tony Benn, and I think if they were, if they did not face the issues they face in the PLP around being more pro-EU. I think if they had more dominance in the PLP with their own MPs, and that's why I think we saw a surge in kind of attempts to deselect, because I think they wanted to get more, to put it in a common phrase, Corbynista MPs into Parliament, I think they would have taken a... I mean, I would even go as far to say they probably might have taken a leave a leave position. Because they realised, you know, this is interesting, they realised, you know, to be fair to the Corbyn supporters, they realised they were losing like those key seats like Bassett Law and in the north that the Tories were hoovering up and as we learned they were hoovering up and uh, they felt Benism was the best way to reconnect um, to those voters and obviously they would go to knock on the voters door and say you know Tony Benn had it right but in the terms of putting Britain's economy first you know being more protectionist um, not, uh, you know, being anti-EU, basically about foreign, uh, foreign workers undercutting local labourers. I mean, that is the stuff we're actually talking about here. Um, and I think if they didn't have, if they didn't have meet as much PLP resistance, I think that would have been the line. Do you think that part of the factionalism that we saw uh, in the Labour Party uh, during this period, and some of the discontent that we saw with Corbyn's leadership uh, towards uh, the end of uh, his leadership was due to the fact that a lot of people, uh, particularly younger people, um, supported some of the more redistributive ideas of Corbynism, but didn't 
fully perhaps realise or comprehend that there was the implicit support for leaving the European Union as well. Right, exactly. But, you know, you can't you can't blame that generation and not not I wrote that book for that generation but this book helps you hopefully gives people that kind of historical sense that this is not a new um and that uh, uh that you know from their perspective corbynism looked new in terms of economics it's not new at all but it, they wouldn't be aware of corbyn coming from a kind of labor left background of being hostile to the eu you know, let's not forget that Tony Benn uh, was on the leave side or not joining side in, in the 70s. So uh, that is a s- central theme in Corbynism. And, you know, that generation, the, the kind of student generation would not be aware of that, really. So, yeah, they would probably subscribe to everything Corbynism was talking about without being completely aware of the kind of innate hostility to the EU. Um, one of the things that I think is particularly interesting is that even though that this is a book about ideas, of course, individuals are uh, predominant in the book uh, and the way that they interact with ideas. And one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting is uh, you mentioned in the book that ideas in the Labour Party under New Labour uh, were more likely to influence party policy if they influenced uh, Tony Blair personally or people who were close to him, the sort of the, the tight-knit um, group that helped uh, found and uh, found New Labour. Do you think that the way that people react to ideas is as important as the ideas themselves? Maybe more so. And uh, people judge ideas, most people judge any idea from any part of the political spectrum based on their values and their identity. They supersede, those things supersede the kind of the practical uh, uh, look at the idea and whether it would work, uh, who would it benefit, who would it not benefit. Kind of, it trumps a rational analysis of the idea in question. So um, how the idea resonates with that person individually, whether, whether it resonates with their values or and their, their identity uh, will dictate how they react. So that, that was part of the issue for blue labor, the blue, right? So Maurice Glassman did that to be provocative. So it got the media attention and it did with the blue labor bit, but actually it, it finished it as well because if you're going to Labour membership, talking about blue Labour, which invariably hints at conservatism, you're not going to win a membership over like that. You're not going to win natural Labour voters. And that that finished it with Fred Miliband in the end. It, it, it wasn't going to connect with a large swathe of who would naturally support Labour. So um, how an idea is... Uh, presented and therefore perceived is more important than the utility of the idea itself. Um, Now, of course, uh, the book itself uh, goes from 1945 up to um, pretty much the present day. How similar do you think the Labour Party is now to the Labour Party of 1945? And do you think that the way that the Labour Party interacts with ideas 
is radically different from 45 to now or do you think that it's it's similar in the way it interacts with ideas Actually, you know that's a very good question i think it's similar although i wouldn't say 1945 what i would say is the leopard is very similar to um the 1950s Labour Party. So in 1945, Attlee had a, he had a coherent set of ideas that had broad political agreement within the party, uh, and they implemented it. They almost, they were, they were too successful. You know, you read some of the historical sources there. They, they were so successful in implementing those ideas, the Beveridge Report and Keynesian economics and, and a, a huge amount of nationalization that when they got to the 1950, 951 elections, they had nothing else to say. They, they had run out of renewing themselves and then they and then this decade basically labor lost almost a decade more than a decade actually to the conservatives because labor was trying to adapt to the new affluent society it was as it was termed where you know basically people were buying washing machines you know irons you know uh, rationing was starting to stop you know, the more consumerism was starting to take hold um, of Britain and, and Labour was struggling to adapt itself. And I think we're, we're in a similar position here with the Labour Party that um, the Labour Party ne- almost needs a centralising idea to, to go around and to support before it starts winning power again. And I think it's lost. I think it's, I think it's, we're still in the middle of this kind of, War of what what the party is, how it what it what its identity, and I, that sounds a bit dramatic, but I don't think it is. You know, it's 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 got this middle class that is pro EU, um, very liberal on many issues culturally. Then it's got this working class support, which it's lost a certain amount of, which is less liberal on social issues, more patriotic. Uh, and hostile to the EU. And how do you marry them? How do you marry them in a, in a world where you basically have no money? Which is the central marrying thing of the Labour Party, which is redistribute. Um, and I think it is still floundering around to solve that problem. Um, now, you mentioned this continuing uh, factionalism and uh, a sense that even with a new leader, Keir Starmer, that the Labour Party is deeply divided. During the um, leadership election, do you think any of the um, leadership or deputy leadership candidates were uh, fully able to uh, present ideas that could uh, bridge this divide? No. No, the the internal atmosphere is too freebile. It's too factional. So you either went the factional route, which um, uh, one of the candidates did uh, and lost. I'm talking about the leadership candidates, uh, or you did the Keir Starmer route, which was take the Kinnick middle line. Uh, you know, so he, he was very deliberate. He said quite early on that the manifest, the Corbyn manifesto shouldn't be chucked away. And that was a signal to the soft left and to those members of the left that he was going to repudiate Corbynism or Corbyn entirely. But he also talked about the anti-Semitic 
tism issue and so that was a signal to those on the right or the more, more moderate wing that he would take a tougher stance on this and he has in recent weeks so he deliberately positioned himself in the middle of course that works for a while um but when um and hopefully if this uh covid epidemic um subsides the deficit issue will highlight that again and the eu issue will uh, will come back up right and it's those issues haven't gone away mm. they're just uh, dropped in importance rightly due to the virus but they're there they're just sitting there and they need to be dealt with so he's got he's got any none of the leadership candidates or deputy leadership candidates talked about that um and to be fair to them it's a big issue so why would you start dealing with that in a campaign mm. but they'll have to they'll have to uh, we're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast now. It's been uh, great to speak to you, uh, Dimitri. It would be great to have you on again. Uh, I'd, I'd like to ask you uh, one final question. If you had to pick any single idea uh, that's in this book, and this may be a bit of a big ask, but if you had to pick any single idea uh, as your favourite, what would you say is your favourite idea that Sorry. is discussed in the book? Favorite idea? That's a good question. Um, I like pre-distribution. Um, I would. It's a very wonky thing to say. Uh, it's a very academic idea, but actually, I think it had legs. It, the word needs to change, and the political story around it needs to be changed. But I think the premise that the system is fair before people go out and you know uh, try to make something of themselves. I think. I think across the political spectrum, I think a lot of the British public would buy into that idea and that if the system's fair from the get-go and if you you know make lots of money um then that's fine but i think uh a lot of people even people who vote conservative don't want the system to be unfair in the first place and i think pre-distribution try to start that conversation and start that kind of how what policies did you need to make that system come about and the the, the country that has this system and it has a lot of faults um is japan but if you look at japan it has the lowest one of the lowest gaps of inequality in the world and it has one of the lowest social problems in the world um and i think that that's a big uh a big plus and we need to really seriously think about that oh well that's an idea that i certainly think is interesting i agree with you is something that uh, should be pursued and i think uh, a lot of our listeners uh, would agree with you as well thank you once again for coming on thank you well for inviting me thank you for listening to the podcast don't forget that you can subscribe on itunes spotify podbean or youtube you can follow us at debated podcast on twitter like us debated podcast on facebook and if you want to email us either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard or any other episodes, then email us thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.